0: welcome to another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany
1: and I'm Alice and this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. With us is Dr. Sophie Duncan, who is a researcher at Magdalen College, Oxford, and an expert on the suffragettes. She is currently the academic lead on the National Trust's 2018 national public programme, Women in Power. Her latest book, Women in Power, The Struggle for Suffrage, co-written with Rachel Lennon, is out now with National Trust Books. Sophie is here to talk to us about Emily Welding davidson one of the best-known suffragettes and often known as the suffragette martyr. Thank you so much for coming, Sophie. Could you start by giving us an overview about what her childhood was like, what her family life was like, how her early years influenced her later life?
2: Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So Emily was born into an initially very comfortable late Victorian family. The one interesting thing about the family is that her mother had originally been her father's housekeeper, and after the death of her father's first wife, leaving him a widower with nine children, whether their relationship began before or after that we don't know, but Margaret became pregnant they had a child together and then he married her. but that kind of interesting class anomaly aside it was initially a prosperous straightforwardly middle class Victorian childhood so suburban villas and country houses, governesses a year abroad in France, and then a secondary education at Kensington High School for Girls which was an an expensive private school in Kensington and her brothers were sent to similar schools. Emily was intelligent, she was precocious and her family was relatively progressive and so in her late teens she gained a place at Holloway College which we now think of as Royal Holloway. It was a brand new very progressive women's college and off she went to study for a degree.
0: But it wasn't that straightforward was it when she got to Royal Holloway in the end?
2: No, Emily has a brilliant time there, she's very happy, but she's two years into her studies when her father dies. He's in his early 70s, but he seemed fit and healthy. The death was unexpected, and like a lot of Victorian wives, Margaret, Emily's mother, had very little idea of her husband's finances. If you look at the family's census returns over the years leading up to Charles' Davidson's death. It's obvious their circumstances have become more straitened. they have fewer servants, things like that, but it was still a terrible shock to the family when it turned out he had left them £102. In modern money that's about £8,500, so obviously not enough to support a family for very long. It's £102 and at that point Emily's fees at Holloway College are about £20 a term. There's evidence that Margaret very much wanted her daughter to continue at Holloway, but that was impossible. Emily had to leave. What did she spend her time doing after she left Royal Holloway? Well, she had to go to work. It's actually very moving because she was absolutely determined to carry on with her studies. She becomes a governess, the kind of standard career route for a woman of her class and education at that time. But she's desperate to keep up with her friends who are still at Holloway College. She borrows tutorial notes from them. She attends evening classes. This is the great era of the beginnings of night schools, of self-education in London. So she tries desperately. She wants to complete her formulation education. She works as a governess for two, two and a half years. By 1895 though she has got enough money to go back to university but only just.
0: How was it that she ended up in Oxford and didn't go back to Royal Holloway?
2: Yes absolutely Emily doesn't go back to Royal Holloway and that might well have been her first choice. Instead she comes to Oxford just for one term to sit her finals and not just to Oxford in general she becomes a student at St Hugh's. By 1895, Oxford has three women's colleges. Now, both Lady Margaret Hall and Somerville would have been much too expensive for Emily. LMH charged £75 a year, so it was actually more expensive than Royal Holloway. And Somerville was £60. So she would have had the same financial problems at these colleges as she would at Royal Holloway. But Elizabeth Wordsworth, who was the principal of Lady Margaret Hall, had, in 1886, founded the third college, St Hugh's. And unlike Lady Margaret Hall and Somerville, Elizabeth Wordsworth specifically intended St Hugh's for younger women with lower incomes, so people who wouldn't be able to afford the fees at LMH and Somerville. So as I said, um, LMH is £75 a year, Somerville is £60, St Hugh's is only £45, so really it's the obvious choice. So Emily wasn't in Oxford for long, but she seems to have made quite an impression. Absolutely. She's only here for a term. She arrives in Trinity term, April 1895, and she stays for just that term to sit her finals. So this is the culmination of work she'd begun at Royal Holloway, all the studying she'd tried in those last two years. It must have gone well because she gets a first, and her tutors are delighted for her. And there's a really lovely letter, I think, that survives from her tutor, Elizabeth M. Lee, saying she richly deserves um, the great success she's just achieved, and talking about how hard-working she is. She must have been an incredibly motivated, dedicated and truly intellectual student. That
1: suggests an incredible amount of perseverance to go away for two years not formally studying but continuing with night classes and continuing to improve her education to the point of being able to sit finals.
2: I don't think it's any coincidence, certainly, that later on when she's an activist, she's very involved in the Workers' Educational Association, and she's very dedicated to helping people access the kind of part-time education that she had relied on to sustain herself intellectually in those intervening two years between Holloway and St Hugh's. Was she at all politically active in Oxford at the time, do we know? We don't know. We know that she was a very committed Christian because she was all her life. And as we kind of have evidence of how her politics came into being, certainly her Christianity and her socialism were very much intertwined. So although there isn't much evidence of her being politically active at the time, the origin of her political beliefs was in her religion, and that was very much there. How did she become
1: involved in the suffrage movement? And
2: when we talk about suffragettes versus suffragists, what do those terms mean? Anybody who is in favour of women having the vote is a suffragist. And that movement really takes off in the 1860s. So it's been around for a generation by the time Emily is studying in Oxford. And suffragists, they are absolutely committed to the idea of women having the vote. But they do not believe that that should be achieved through violent methods through methods that go outside of the law. When the suffragettes come into being, that is in 1903, when Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel, they are members of the N-U-W-S-S, that's the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which is the suffragist governing body, if you like. It's the central organisation They think that non-militant tactics have run their course, they're frustrated by the pace of change, and they form the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU. When militancy starts in 1905, the term suffragette starts to be used, and a suffragette is somebody who is prepared to break the law in pursuit of women getting the vote. It's worth remembering that although we hear the terms used interchangeably, they're not. But the point is that actually the suffragettes were a minority within the much, much larger suffragist movement. And where does Emily fall in this? Emily is very much a member of the WSPU. She is a suffragette. She writes for suffragette newspapers. She is imprisoned eight times as a result of suffragette activities. She has gone on to become almost the most famous suffragette there was. And how does she become involved in the movement? She becomes involved in the 1900s when she is working as a governess, as a schoolteacher, as various kinds of tutor. Emmeline Pankhurst said of her that her character had just been absolutely formed by the struggles she had gone through and by the movement that she was part of. And I think it's very clear as well as the political side of the movement. Emily Davison writes in the Votes for Women newspaper at one point that militancy, being a suffragette, has given her a fullness of job and an interest in living that she had never before experienced. And I mean, it's trite to say that that's a very telling remark, but I think it's indicative of how much intellectual and professional privation she had gone through. I don't think her plan was ever to be a schoolteacher. You know, she changed jobs quite frequently. She wasn't happy. And the there's no doubt that the movement although it exposes her to appalling brutality to unhappiness brings her because of her experiences in prison to the point of suicide there is no job that it gives her a fullness of job and an interest in living and that's a very characteristic remark you get suffragists and suffragettes alike talking about the political and emotional fulfillment that activism gave them but of course nobody carries it quite as far as emily so you say she experienced a lot of violence
0: as part of her role in the suffragettes could you tell us a bit more
2: about that? Emily is imprisoned eight times, and she is force-fed 49 times. There are other, other ways that suffragettes allege they experienced brutality. So, for example, there's the Black Friday protest in 1910, which Emily wasn't part of, where suffragettes were sexually assaulted by the police. But the force-feeding is, for Emily, both the worst experience and actually a turning point in how she sees herself and the movement. So she's in prison, as she is repeatedly, and she is force-fed. As Emily described afterwards, she wrote, "'The horror of that scene will haunt me all my life.'" She was was traumatised, and suffragettes were traumatised by it. Basically, five or six people would come into a cell. They would use a steel instrument to force open the woman's jaws they would put a pipe down her throat. Emily only ever writes about having been forced fed through the mouth, but it's worth pointing out that women were also forced thread through the nose and on occasion the rectum. So we're talking about a process which is a physical penetrative assault. Women, in some cases, had their health ruined. So there's another suffragette, Constance Lytton, who initially was not force-fed because she was from a wealthy background and working-class women tended to get the worst of it. But she was force-fed in prison when she was allowed herself to be arrested under an assumed name and she suffered a stroke from which she never fully recovered. So it's an incredibly brutal, dehumanising and traumatic experience. And Emily was so horrified by what she'd gone through that... During one prison sentence, she decided that due to the barbaric torture, as she put it, some kind of desperate protest was needed and she attempted suicide. She threw herself down an iron staircase. She survived, but it was more by luck than judgment.
0: So while all this was going on, what kind of things were happening in Oxford with the suffragette movement?
2: Oxford's a really interesting case because although a lot of rural Oxfordshire was fiercely anti-suffrage, Oxford itself has had a suffragist presence since the late 1860s when you get the first pro-suffrage petitions coming out of the city being presented to Parliament, being sent in. Then in 1873, we have the first proper suffragist meeting, if you like. So, Lydia Becker, one of the first generation of suffragists, attends and addresses a meeting in the drawing room of Amelia Frances Pattinson. She is She's amazing. She's just one of my favourite Victorian Oxford women. I think she'd make a great podcast all by herself. She was the feminist and pro-trades unionist wife of Lincoln's rector, Mark Pattinson. And to give you some idea of what they were like, although this is quite hard on Mark, if you've read Middlemarch... Dorothea Brooke, the awesome, idealistic, very well-meaning heroine who goes through a kind of arc of self-discovery but is very much on the right side of history. Elliot's beloved heroine of Middlemarch was, early biographers thought, inspired by Emily. Mark Patterson, her husband, was supposedly the inspiration for Kazubon, the desiccated, depressing, older man whom Dorothea marries. And that's quite hard on Mark because he was also in favour of women having the vote. But that's where the culture begins. It starts in North Oxford drawing rooms. But later on, um, the suffragists are very much more involved with the town as well as the gown, so you get open air meetings at factory gates, including at the gates of what was then the Clarendon Press, today OUP, and there are regional, if you like, neighbourhood I suppose I should say, suffrage societies formed around the city, as well as a lot of activity in North Oxford, which then as now was rather more genteel, you get a society being formed in the St Ebbs Quarter, which is aimed at the wives of working men. Militancy does make it to Oxford as well. So you have Emmeline Pankhurst comes to address people, you have a variety of speakers at the town halls. Obviously wherever there is suffrage activism there is also anti-suffrage violence. Five months before Emily Wilding Davidson dies, so in early 1913, there's a torch-lit procession of suffragist activists, so non-militant activists. They process from Cowley Place up to St Giles, but they are attacked by male undergraduates. And that, again, is a motif. When I say there was violence, what I mean is male undergraduates attacked female activists. So, for example, when the Oxford Suffrage Society gets premises on Holywell Street, that's attacked. When Sylvia Pankhurst comes to speak in Oxford, that's Emmeline's daughter, Christabel's sister, who was a socialist and unlike her mother and sister interested in giving working women the vote. When Sylvia comes to Oxford, undergraduates from St. John's throw stones at her. Despite this, despite all the persecution, there were suffragists, suffragettes all across Oxford. In fact, in 1910, and I, I, this is my favourite Oxford suffrage fact, the WSPU opens its own suffragette shop, which sold pro-suffrage literature and information, and that was on the High Street. It was where Whitards is today, and I think there ought to be a blue plaque.
1: So was there an understanding at the time of the difference between a non-violent suffragist and the more violent
2: suffragettes? Yes, absolutely in theory. The press talked about it, and to be fair, the suffragists who were non-violent were very keen to distinguish themselves from the suffragettes because they felt strongly that the suffragettes were not helping the movement by being militant. When there's the Caddy Place to St Giles procession in 1913 and it's constitutional suffragists, as they called themselves, because they stayed within the constitution of the law, the explanation usually given is that the men mistook them for militants. We just don't know. I think certainly there was huge opposition to the suffragists as well as to the suffragettes. If you look at some of the really major anti-suffragist speakers in Parliament and in the country generally, they absolutely deplore the violence of the suffragettes, but they think that the aims of all the pro-suffrage movement are diabolical. I mean, Lord Curzon, who is the most foaming-mouthed anti-suffragist of the day he genuinely thinks that if women have the vote Britain will lose the empire and obviously what a terrible thing that would be so we come to the thing which
1: she is probably most famous for which is the circumstances surrounding her death would you mind taking us
2: through what happened on that day it's June 1913, it's the Derby, and George V's horse, Anmer, is running in the race. Emily and um, a couple of other suffragettes are at the Derby, and Adma is on the field. Emily walks out. And opinions differ on whether she attempts to grab the bridle, attempts to pin something to the bridle of the horse because she had various banners and flags on her at the time. What we know happens is that the horse hits her, she is knocked over and over, the horse and the rider go down as well, and a crowd rushes onto the course. A doctor is found, she is removed to a hospital and dies four days later without ever regaining consciousness. The coroner attributes it to a fracture at the base of the skull. There's, understandably and unsurprisingly, an enormous public response. Immediately to the suffrage movement, she is a martyr. To the wider general public, for the most part, she is a fanatic, a demented woman, a brutal woman... There is huge concern about the horse. It is a fact of our national character, and I can understand it. We really don't like bad things happening to horses. So there is a lot of ill feeling because she has injured an animal. There follows the most spectacular funeral. A huge march through the centre of London, suffragettes carrying flowers, banners, crowds thronging the streets to see what happens, and then her body is taken by train up to Morpeth. To the suffragettes, it is unequivocal that she died as a deliberate act of martyrdom. Historians since are not so sure that she definitely intended to die that day. What's the cause for the ambiguity and what's your opinion? The cause for the ambiguity... Well, on the kind of pro-deliberate suicide evidence is the fact that Davison was undoubtedly willing to die for her beliefs. She proved that in prison when she attempted suicide. She had written that she thought the movement needed a martyr. And I think, and in my mind, there is absolutely no doubt that she was prepared to die whenever the occasion demanded it. She thought of herself, I think, very much as a soldier. So the day before the Derby, or a couple of days before, she attended a suffrage event where there was some artwork, I think, a representation of Joan of Arc and she was observed to kind of salute that icon before she left, almost like a soldier preparing for battle. Now a soldier who goes into battle is prepared to die but they're not necessarily intending to do so. Emily had on her person at the time of her injuries, she had a return rail ticket, she had tickets for a future suffrage event, she had things booked in her diary, and she hadn't left any kind of note. Now, Emily was a prolific writer. She earned money writing articles for suffrage newspapers. She was a literature graduate. You know, she wrote, there's a collection of her writings and letters that survive. Somebody who was so attuned to the political power of sacrifice, and so attuned to the power of the written word, I find it unlikely she wouldn't have left any kind of professional statement or manifesto or commentary on what she was doing. But also, um, Emily remained absolutely devoted to her mother, and I find it unlikely that she would have left nothing for her. A really interesting facet of suffrage history are the relationships between the mothers and daughters involved so an analogous story to give you an idea there's a suffragette called Evelyn Sharp who is a journalist she's a little bit younger than Emily and she is swept up in the suffrage campaigning after seeing Elizabeth Robbins who was an actress and suffragette speak and for the first three years I think it's three years, for the first period of time of her activism anyway. She stops short of breaking the law because she has promised her mother not to do anything that would get her arrested. And Evelyn and her mother have this very close, tender relationship And her mother eventually releases her from this promise, saying, I've thought about it. I can no longer expect you to be bound by what I want. I have no right to stand in your way. I can't say anything more about it, but please be happy now. Equally, Viscountess Rhonda, who is a peeress and suffragette, she attends her first suffragette event with her mother, who also joins the WSPU and also goes to prison at one point. Now, Emily and her mother were very close. She adored her mother. Her mother was a widow. Her mother had tried hard to keep her at Raw Holloway. After the widowhood, I find it inconceivable that she wouldn't have left something for her mother if she had really, truly, unequivocally intended to die that day. A lot of people consider her legacy to be her death.
0: Do you share that opinion? What do you think her legacy is?
2: I know that I'd like her legacy to be far more about the work she did in her lifetime in terms of her activism for workers' education. So the organisation she was involved with, the Workers' Educational Association, is today the UK's largest provider of adult education in the voluntary sector, which is amazing. I would like her legacy to be an example of Christian socialism. As somebody who tries to be both a Christian and a socialist, I find her use of religion to bring about social equality really admirable. But undoubtedly, her, her big legacy, the legacy which is brought to us particularly as women as a reminder of why we should vote you know we're told women died so that you could have the vote and by women people mean Emily Wilding Davison so that is undoubtedly her legacy now she may have died in order that we might have the vote did her dying help us get the vote no I don't think so at the time it turned public opinion further against the suffragettes. And I think if we look at why some women got the vote in 1918, that is far more a consequence of factors that had very little to do with Emily Wilding Davison, so... The First World War, the war work that women had done, the need to expand the franchise to include the men who had been in the armed forces, the departure of Herbert Asquith as Prime Minister because he was very anti-women's suffrage, and the arrival of David Lloyd George who, although he'd been a real hate figure for the suffragettes, was personally more pro-suffrage. The suffrage movement had been around for over 40 years by the time Emily Wilding Davison died. When the vote comes in, a generation of politicians who had been children and young men at the start of that movement were now in positions of power and they were more receptive to the idea than their forefathers. In terms of individual contributions, I fear... Because I don't want to detract from the strength of Emily Wilding Davidson's beliefs at all. I'd say it was more the diplomacy and negotiation of figures like, say, Millicent Garrett Fawcett and the war work of that generation of suffrage activists who weren't pacifists who took part very enthusiastically in Britain's contribution to World War One. I. I think they probably, sadly, have more to do with it. I don't think that means Emily wilding Davison died in vain. I do think the fact that she did die very brutally for her beliefs has helped to some extent to obscure the issue of whether or not the suffragettes were terrorists.
1: So you use that word terrorist in your book, Women and Power, The Struggle for Suffrage,
2: you argue that they are terrorists. It's a difficult word, terrorist, isn't it? But we certainly raise that possibility There is no doubt in my mind that some of the violent acts committed by suffragettes under today's legislation on terrorism definitely fall into that act. And I think that this isn't... Particularly clearly understood is a product of how we've talked about and how we've taught the suffragettes and what they did. So, for example, we say, oh, they set fire to post boxes. What they did was make bombs and put them in post boxes. Suffragettes attached bombs to railings of London streets. They performed acts of arson that could have killed people. The, the fact is that the suffragettes did not kill anybody except themselves was more luck than judgment. And I think that the advent of World War I, which obviously Emily didn't live to see, but which suspended militant suffrage activity, prevented the suffragettes claiming their first civilian victims... Whether Emily was a terrorist, I don't feel completely qualified to say. The kinds of things she went to prison for were allegedly assaulting police officers, window smashing, things like that. It's less the kind of more deliberate professionalised bomb making that you get later in 1913 and into 1914. However, I find it distinctly unlikely that if she hadn't died in June 1913, she would have held back from that most violent phase of suffrage activism
1: one of the things that really struck me about emily was her incredible intelligence and perseverance throughout her life she achieved so many incredible things and yet we keep returning to this one fact of the circumstances of her death how did you feel about her when you were researching her
2: I think that the ambiguity of Emily Wilding Davidson's death will always fascinate because it was so public, it was so spectacular, it was on film, which makes it a very modern death for 1913. It is, of course, on YouTube, but I find her life fascinating because in there is a there's a really inspiring and interestingly characteristic story of a Victorian woman who struggles to obtain access to higher education. I like her educational story for the light it sheds on Victorian Oxford and the kind of insight it gives us into the formation of our first three colleges to admit women what i enjoyed it made me understand more learning about her early life more about st hughes and lady margaret hall and somerville and i think what i found most refreshing is her activism with the workers educational association because for every emily who was middle class and had lots of resources and lots of volition who was able to have a bit of education and then attend the evening classes and work as a governess and just kind of struggle her way through until she could sit her finals there were hundreds thousands tens of thousands of working class women and men for whom tertiary education well for whom secondary education was a total impossibility i think that is something that's worth remembering and i think it's something that she clearly remembered because of the activism she went on to perform alongside her campaign for the vote
0: thank you so much Sophie for coming and talking to us about Emily Wilding Davidson
2: you're very welcome thank you for having me
0: thank you for listening to women in Oxford's history join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past